Well, as I said before, I'm so glad to have you guys here. And um, if uh, I just wanted to say one more thing, if it is your first time, if you're a first time guest with us here this morning, I know a couple of you, it is that case. Uh, we just want to say welcome to you. So glad to have you guys here. Um, and we want you to know a couple of things. One, we hope that you feel right at home immediately uh, as, you're, as you're here, because we really desire to be in relationship with you. And so we really hope that this is something that feels right at home to you right away. And the second thing that we want everyone to know, uh, whether you're a first time guest or whether you've been coming for uh, a few months or a couple of years, uh, we're not more than a few years old. So, um, but uh, we want you to know that this is a safe place for you to grow in your relationship with Jesus or if you're not sure about Jesus, if you're not sure about God, or you're just not sure where you're at with that, this is a safe place for you to explore that possibility. Um, and so we are in the midst of a series called Running with the Giants, um, called Running with the Giants. And what basically the, the really simple gist is we are taking a closer look at people in the Bible who were giants in their faith. People who lived for God, they surrendered their lives to God, their actions, their words, everything they did completely to God to the nth degree. And as a result, their life reflected that. So we're looking at people in the Bible who were giants of faith, giants in their faith. And today we get to take a look at two people actually at the same time because their stories are one and the same. They're intertwined. These two people who are giants in their faith, these two people are called Ruth. Their names are Ruth and Boaz. Um, If you've never heard of this, there is a book in the Bible called Ruth. And so that's where we're going to be. If you'd like to follow along, go ahead and turn in your Bibles or on your app. I have to say that now, right? There's an app for everything. Um, Go ahead and turn there. And we're going to be in the book of Ruth. We're going to be in chapters 1 and 2 mainly is where we're going to bounce around a lot. But Ruth and Boaz are really great examples in their faith. But more specifically, Ruth and Boaz are great examples in the area of generosity and blessing. Generosity and blessing. They were incredibly generous and they were incredibly amazing, really good at giving and offering blessing to other people. And so we're going to look at their their story and we're going to get some truths about generosity and blessing. I think a topic that we all identify with and want to have and want other people to have toward us, but we have a hard time practicing. And so we're going to talk about some truths of generosity and blessing today from their story. So let me just set up the story for us uh, for a second, because it's a whole book long. It's like four chapters in the Bible. And so there's no way we can cover all of it. So let me just set up the context. The whole story of Ruth and Boaz and, and all the different family is it's about a normal Israelite family. And this takes place in the year around 1100 BC. We don't know the exact year, but it's around 1100 BC. So to give some perspective, this is about a little over a thousand years before Jesus ever enters earth. Okay. So this is a long time before Jesus ever even came to earth. This is a, this is a long time before that. Um, and so it's a normal Hebrew family. And at this time in Israel, there was a huge famine in the land which very, is a very simple word to say that there was not enough food. We don't know if it was a drought. We don't know if the locusts came by and there was a big plague. We don't know why, but there was not enough food to go around for everybody in Israel at this time for whatever reason. And so this Hebrew family, they have to move from the land of Judah, which is in the southern part of Israel, around the, city of Be- the town of Bethlehem, 
We're going to hear about the town of Bethlehem in a few weeks, aren't we, a lot, uh, where Jesus was born. Kind of there's this big thing called Christmas coming up. But Bethlehem is where this, this Hebrew family lived. And so they needed to move. So they are going to move from Judah to another land called Moab. And we have a, a, a map. Um, Moab is on the right side to the east of Judah. And see, they had to go around the Dead Sea. This is a huge journey. Now, for us in a car in the area of plains, this would not be a big deal. Okay, but for them, they have to walk. Um, all right, and so they have to get all the way, all the way through the rest of Judah, across the Jordan River, north of the Dead Sea, and come all the way down to a land called Moab, where there's completely different people, different religion, different traditions, completely different area. And so they moved to Moab, and they lived there for several years. Now, there's some key things that we need to know that happens while this family is in Moab. We have this family, and the, the husband's name is Elimelech. You're going to get some great names. Like if you have, you're getting ready to have children or anything like that, just take note. Like write these down because, I mean, you're ready to go this morning. Okay, the husband's name is Elimelech, and uh, the wife's name is Naomi. Um, so that's a cool name. A lot of you might, you might even have a Naomi in your, in your family. So Elimelech and Naomi, they're married, and they have two boys, two sons. God bless them. All right. They had two boys and, and these two sons. So the four of them make the trip to Moab. Okay. When they get to Moab, the, the sons must have been a little bit older because they were of marrying age. And while they're in Moab, they actually go there and they actually find a couple of ladies that catch their eye. They were Moabite women. They were from Moab. They were not Hebrew. They were not Israelites. They were Moab women. And they find them and they get married to them. And so awesome and and all this kind of stuff happens well that's where it kind of turns uh, a different a bad turn because at that point then soon after they get married Elimelech dies we don't know why but he passes and so Naomi loses her husband and then um, soon after that just a few years later the two sons they actually die and they pass away and so now Naomi is left with no husband and neither of her two sons all she has now are the two daughters-in-law it's going to be a lot of fun Right? She's got left her two daughters-in-law. And so now Naomi's trying to figure out what is she going to do? Right? And so she decides, well, probably the best thing for me to do is I need to move back to the area around Bethlehem in Judah in Israel because I know that's where my family is or some relatives that I know. That's where I know their faith. I know their religion. I know the traditions. I know the laws. This doesn't make sense for me to live in Moab anymore, and the famine is over. And so she decides she's going to go back with her two daughters-in-law. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story in the book of Ruth, chapter 1. So if you're going to follow along, we're going to start with verse 6, when Naomi has decided to go back to Israel. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. In other words, the famine is over. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands, and to me. In other words, thank you for being a part of this family. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? 
No, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Now, this is, this is kind of a depressing start to a story, isn't it? It's like, wow, you picked a good one this morning. Thank you. <laughs> right? The Packers lose last Sunday. Hopefully we rebound this Sunday. And now we've got this to start with. Thank you. This is great. Right? Well, this is a difficult start to the story because this does tell us a couple of things about this family and specifically about Naomi. Two things that I want to highlight that we know from Naomi about Naomi because of this first start to this story. One, Naomi truly and completely believes she has no future left. Did you notice that? She is in complete despair. She is completely devastated. She is depressed beyond all depressed. She cannot get out of this thinking, this mindset that she has no future in life. There is no value in life for her. She's there. She's roiling in it. You can tell. I mean, even when her daughters-in-law say, no, we will go with you. We want to go with you. She says, are you kidding me? I am worth nothing. I have no future. Please go have a life. You can't stay with me. You'll have nothing. I have no future left. Naomi is roiling in this just despair and devastation. She's devastated. And understandably, she's just lost her husband and her both of her sons. And so she's roiling in this. But the second thing, did you notice what she said at the very end of that passage? She said, the Lord has raised his fist against me. She is ticked at God. She's mad. She is. You can, you can tell. In fact, I didn't, I'm not going to read the next part, but Naomi goes on and you were going to hear Naomi talk a couple more times. She is mad at God. She is just mad at him. She's like, God has raised his fist at me. I mean, that's strong language for the Bible. <laughs> All right. Actually, if you've read the Bible, that's not really that strong. It gets pretty than that uh, many other times. But she's really mad. She's upset. She's, she's in despair, and she's also mad at God about it. And so she literally, she's in this place where she does not feel she has a future. She doesn't feel she has anything left to live for at all. And she's mad at God for it. Okay, so those are two things we need to know. Now, she's still having this conversation with her daughters-in-law. Let's see how this goes. Okay, Ruth chapter 1, now starting with verse 14. And again, they wept together after Naomi says, no, you should go. And Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. And then listen to this. This is a vow that Ruth is going to make to Naomi. This is powerful stuff. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. That is quite a promise. That is quite the vow. So Naomi is saying, I have no life. I am in complete despair. And Ruth, this daughter-in-law, Orpah, she says, okay, I don't know what to do, but okay, I'll go back. And she leaves. And Ruth 
she, I, I can, I, this is the picture I get. I see Ruth getting on her knees and grabbing a hold. It says that she clung to Naomi. So I don't know if she knelt down. I don't know if she just hugged her. I don't know what it was, but she was all over Naomi. And she's like, no, don't force me to go. I am going to stay with you for as long as I possibly can. And Ruth would not let her go. This is powerful stuff. And so Ruth is there. And the reason I bring this up is that Naomi is devastated. Ruth knows that. And so Ruth says, listen, I'm going to be unbelievably generous. This is a hugely generous act. I want us, I want us to understand the gravity of this. What Ruth is saying to Naomi is, I know that this is not a future for me. This is going to really lead me nowhere. I should go back. What you're saying is true. I should go back. I should marry again. I should go back to my family where they know me. I know them. I know the faith. I know the traditions. I know nobody in Bethlehem. Nobody except for Naomi, of course. I know no one. I don't know the traditions. I don't know the faith. I don't know the background. I don't know any of that stuff. Ruth says, but Ruth is extremely, extravagantly generous. She is a huge blessing to Naomi at this point. I mean, it's absolutely massive. And this brings us to our first point about generosity and blessing. It is really important to understand. And this is, if we are going to be generous, if we're going to be a blessing to other people, change is required. This is what makes extravagant generosity almost impossible for us. This is what makes just simple, little generosity difficult to do. Because it requires changing ourselves. It requires us to change us, to allow God to move us to be somebody different. See, there are levels to generosity, aren't there? And and Ruth, she took the most extreme generosity, the best generosity she could possibly have chosen. Think about this. Ruth could have said, you know what, Uh, Naomi, let me pray for you before you go. And that would have been great. That would have been nice. Wouldn't you guys enjoy that and appreciate that? If somebody says, hey, pray for you before you go, I'll pray for safe journey and strong legs and, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because this, this journey, by the way, it's not safe that she has to make, Naomi. Okay? Um, Ruth could have said, you know what, Naomi, uh, this, this trip is several days long. And so let me, let me pack you some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. All right? Let me get out my GIF. And, uh, and we'll do that and get my grape jelly. And, and I'm going to pack several of them for you. And, and here's my lunchbox. Here's a little cooler. You know, <laughs> it wouldn't have been that, but you get the gist, right? She could have packed her some food and said, here's some provisions. <clears throat> I hope you make it okay. I love you. Thank you for loving me so much. See you later. She could have done that. That would have been really generous. That would have been nice. She could have, Ruth could have said, you know what, Naomi? I fear for your safety. So I'm going to travel with you back to Judah and then I will figure out a way to get back to my own homeland. But I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to go with you to make sure you're safe. And then once I know that you've got a place to live and and somebody knows that you're still there and and you're taken care of at least or some kind of thing, then, then I'll head back to my homeland. She could have, wouldn't that make sense? Wouldn't that be reasonable? Ruth didn't do any of that. She changed everything about her life everything. This is the direction she could have gone. And she said, nope, I'm going this way. Completely the opposite direction. Why? Not for her own benefit. This was going, this was the worst decision for her life, worldly speaking, that she could make. 
But she did it because she was going to be extravagantly generous and be a blessing to Naomi, somebody that she truly cared for because she knew it was the right thing to do. And so Ruth shows us that first truth, which is if we are going to be generous as people, if we are going to be a blessing to others, it's going to change us. It has to. In fact, by the way, if I were to say it a little bit different way, kind of the backwards way, if it doesn't change us, it's probably not that generous. That one stung me this week. Because I know that I've given sometimes and I knew that I should have given more. Have you ever done that? Where like you were impressed, you heard a story and somebody was hurting and you knew what you were supposed to do and yet you offered something half of that. Ever been there? I've been there. I've been there a few times. Sometimes I've given that nth degree, sometimes I haven't and I know how I walk away, how I feel when I know God says, yeah, you heard me, right? I said this, and you you did this. It didn't quite line up. And I know how I feel walking away from that. And And this is why we can do that, and we're still safe. We still feel safe, because the other person didn't know how generous we thought we could be. They don't know. They just were thankful for the generosity, and so that's why we still get that good feeling. We're like, well, I was still generous. I still gave, so it's okay. But if it doesn't change us... If it doesn't hurt a little bit, it's perhaps possible that it's maybe not quite as generous and much of a blessing as we think. I know that's harsh, but I think it's true. And so Ruth goes to that nth degree to change everything about her life, to be generous and to be a blessing. So let's go to the next part of the story. So let's fast forward to chapter two. Now, Ruth and Naomi are in the land of Judah. They're back in Israel and, and they have to figure out now how to survive. Because understand, this is a totally different culture than what we live in. You know, we kind of just, we kind of figure it out or we have life insurance or we have, you know, all these things that kind of support us and kind of protect us from these things. Naomi has nothing. She has no family. She has some distant relatives that she's going to go back to, but there's nobody that's obligated to help her out at all. She has nothing to go back to, nothing. And she has Ruth, but that's it. Ruth has nobody. She knows nobody in Beth- around Bethlehem. She knows nobody. And so they're going to have to figure out how to survive. The first order of business is we got to eat. We need to find food. And so that's the first order of business. So chapter two, we're going to fast forward. They're in Israel now. They're trying to figure out how to survive, how to find food. Chapter two, starting with verse two and three. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Okay, we're going to stop there for just a minute. So the basic gist is here, Ruth is saying, Naomi, we have nothing to eat. We don't have any income. We don't have any family. So we've got to figure out how to make, get some food. Um, and, and somehow they must have found a place to live. But they have to figure this out. And so they go in there and, and, and Ruth says, I'm just going to go out into the fields. I'm going to start gleaning from the fields, the leftovers, as they're harvesting, after they harvest the fields. And there, there's going to be a few things left out there. So that's what Ruth is doing, okay? So that's, that's kind of the gist of what's going on here. Let's go on and see what happens, okay? Oh, by the way, there's going to be some people, obviously, that own the land, right? 
this guy, this is where it enters into the story, this guy named Boaz. And he takes notice of Ruth and he asks about her and finds out who she is and that she came back with her mother-in-law and that she's from Moab. She's a Moabite. And so Boaz knows a little bit about Ruth and so he's going to approach her and kind of have this conversation with her. We're going to look into that, verses 8 through 10. Boaz went over and said to Ruth as she's gleaning from the fields, Listen, my daughter, stay. And my daughter, by the way, is just a term of endearment. It wasn't an actual daughter, of course. Stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly, or in other words, not to chase you off. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have already drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. I'm a Moabite. So we're going to stop there again. Now, Boaz is showing, once again, extreme generosity and blessing to Ruth. And by default, to Naomi. Okay, let me explain what has just happened there. In Jewish culture at this time, what Jewish law said by, according to the Old Testament in the Bible, the one that they lived, everybody lived by, whether they really believed in God or not, one of the things that you had to do was you had to live according to Old Testament law. That was just the way it was. One of the things in Old Testament law required, if you were a farmer, if you were a harvester, if you owned a field and all that stuff, if you were one of those people, then you were required to not pick up every bit of your crop. You were required to leave a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit of it on the field, on the ground. You were not allowed to harvest every last piece. Okay? The reason God set it up that way is because God knew that in that region there would be the poor, the destitute, the homeless, the people that did not have the means to support themselves to be able to get the food. Now, God made them work for it, but they had to go in the fields and they had to glean, but then they would have opportunity to glean as much as they possibly could, as much as they were willing to work for, and they would get as much food as they could to last them through the next several months until the next harvest time of the next crop. And so this was normal practice. Everybody knew this. So Boaz, being the farmer, being the guy that owned this land, he understood that some of this would be left on the ground. They were required by law to do that. That's how they supported the poor in their community. That's how it worked. That's how God set it up. And so this is normal, but this is not what Boaz is doing for Ruth. He's not treating her like a normal person that would just come in and glean from the field. What Boaz is saying is, Ruth, I don't want you to wait. There was, a, there was an appointed time after the harvesters were done in the field that the gleaners were allowed to come on. In fact, that's partly what maybe the young men were for, were there to protect the field from people who would come and steal the crop. Okay, that's why he had to tell them, don't send her away, don't chase her off, don't treat her harshly. Okay? Because what Boaz is saying is, I don't want you to wait for all the other gleaners. You're going to get in there before everybody else can. You're going to go right in behind the harvesters, and you're going to pick up all the grain just as they're going past. Because what they would do is they would harvest the grain, and then they would go back through and pick up all the rest of the grain, and then there would be a little bit, they would leave intentionally leave a little bit left on the field, but not much. Well, what Boaz was saying is, Ruth, I want you to get the best food, and I want you to get more of it. That's essentially what he was telling Ruth. I want you to get more of this food and I want you to get the best stuff before any other gleaners are allowed into the fields. And by the way, I want you to stay in my field. 
Don't, don't go rest, racing around to all the other fields. That'll waste time. That'll waste energy. You need to get back to Naomi. And so I want you to stay in this field. And the second thing is, and we don't get this. This is a hard thing. But he says, also, I don't want you to have to draw your own water. I want you to just drink the water that my workers, that I'm paying my workers to draw for themselves and for the animals and all that kind of stuff on the farm. I want you to drink the water that we draw for you. That was ridiculous. That is ridiculous. You didn't allow gleaners to drink from your water. Like they can, they can very well go to the well and understand. We turn on a faucet, right? It's really difficult for us to get water. We go, right? Actually, we don't do that anymore. We go to the refrigerator and we hit the right button. I want ice cold with crushed ice with star-shaped glasses. You know, whatever. I want blue ice this time. We can do that right now. I mean, it's, a, it's unbelievable. We have 12 buttons. It's like, this is the kind of water I want today, right? And it's filtered. It's clean. It's good to go. And we don't even think about it. I mean, I know I don't. I just, I go up there and like, if it doesn't work right away, I'm like, oh, come on. Oh, yeah, it was locked because we have a two-year-old. Okay, there we go, right? So we don't get this, but this was huge. This was extravagantly generous. It takes a huge amount of effort in a very hot climate, hot culture, to be able to go all the way to the well, draw the water out of the well, pull it in, put it into the other containers, carry it all the way back to the field. And Boaz is saying, you know what? Don't worry about getting your own water. We'll take care of that. It's huge. You don't do that for gleaners. People who just come in the field and glean from your field. But Boaz is saying, that's what I want to do. And this brings us to the the second truth about blessing and generosity that Boaz illustrates for us. This is the second one. Action is required. Not only is change in us required, it's going to force us to change something about ourselves, our time, our our money, our salary, um, our skills and abilities, our knowledge, because we're going to have to give it away. Not only is it going to require us to change, but it's require us to do something about it. Have you ever heard of people saying that they kind of walk around or they even say so? By the way, if they say so, it kind of is a red flag, like right away. I am generous. Okay. <laughs> as soon as somebody claims and says, I'm a generous person. I'm a blessing to everybody. We know who that is, right? God's gift to everybody. I just walked in the room. Thank you. I, I appreciate you all coming today. Right? Uh, you're not the speaker, <laughs> right? You're not the guy. You're not the person, you know? And, and it's like, come on. Action is required because sometimes we think we're more generous than maybe what we are. And what will be the difference is action. Understand what Boaz had to do. Boaz had to go in. He had to talk to all his workers. He had to explain to the young men, hey, there's this lady named Ruth. Let in before all the other gleaners because this is what I've set up for her to do. And she came back with her mother-in-law. They are in a really bad situation. She just lost her husband and her two sons. And so I want you to do this for Ruth. This is required. So he had to go through this whole stepwise process. He made sure she was safe. He made sure he did all this stuff. This was a lot of work, a lot of preparation by on Boaz's part. And he does this. It's extremely generous. It required him to do something about it. He didn't just say, hey, um, you know, drop a couple extra sheaves of grain there. You know, just for Ruth. That'd be great. I mean, he could have done that. He didn't. He went to the nth degree to make sure that Ruth was safe, to make sure that she was able to glean enough in the fields for not only her, but also Naomi. 
Change is required. Action is required. It requires us to do something. Think about the times when God nudges you. I kind of hinted at it before. You know those times when you get that little nudge, that little inkling from God, that, that little just push in the back when you see somebody on the side of the road or when you, when you hear somebody telling you a story at work or, or they say something and they, they say something along the lines of, man, and I was doing this and, and my, my tiller or my, my mower broke down and all that kind of stuff. And you know God is saying, go over and mow their lawn, mow their grass, take your mower over there. And you're going, and the question is whether or not you're going to say anything. And that's playing in your mind. It's playing in your heart. Guess what? That's a little nudge from God. He's kind of giving you a little push from behind. No, no, no. I'm good. No, no. Hey, can I mow your lawn? (laughs) Isn't that how it goes? Isn't this true? No, this is true. We just don't talk about it out loud. Boaz shows what we all need to do when we get that nudge from God. Because obviously he got the nudge from God. Ruth did not end up in his field by accident, did she? I think we know that. Boaz learned that, and he acted accordingly. People are not in your workplace. They're not in your family. They're not in your neighborhood. They're not in your school by accident. You are there and they are there so that you can provide blessing and generosity for each other. True. Absolutely true. Whether or not we feel we want to do it is one thing. But the truth is we are there to be a generous blessing to them. But it's going to require change. It's going to require action. It's going to require us to do something about it. So Boaz tells Ruth all this stuff. It says, hey, I want you to stay in this field. I want you to glean this. And Ruth is just blown away by it. She can't believe the generosity. I mean, that's why she says, I am just a foreigner. I'm a Moabite. Like, uh, you wouldn't even do this for an Israelite. (laughs) I see the other gleaners over there. You're not doing this for them. Like, what's going on here? I'm a Moabite. I don't deserve this. And so Boaz shares with her what he already knows about her, something that she didn't know that he knew about her. Okay, let's see a little glimpse into their conversation. Verses 11 and 12. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. Yes, I know you're a Moabite. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have The third truth about generosity and blessing is this. Generosity and blessing, especially extravagant, has a ripple effect. We never know. When God gives us that little push in the back, when God gives us that little nudge, we never know when we change, when we act, what the ripple effect is going to be, how far it's going to go. We never know. We absolutely never know. The question is, will we act when God gives us that little push? Because we never know what that ripple effect could be. 
Last summer, uh, this is a story that hit all the major news outlets and articles and things like that. I don't know if it made it all the way up here that much, but maybe you heard about this. But it was last summer, it was at a Starbucks. Uh, It was first thing in the morning, I think it was around 7 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday. So normal day, just run-of-the-mill day. And, uh, and there's a woman that went through the drive-thru at Starbucks, and she decided, you guys have heard of these kinds of things. She went through the, the, the drive-thru at Starbucks, and she decided to pay for her coffee, and then she paid for the coffee of the person behind her. Heard of this kind of thing happening, right? So that's what she did. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. She just did that. She paid for her coffee. She paid for one extra coffee, the person behind her. Well, the person got up to the window, the person who had had their coffee paid for, and they let him know, uh, or her know, I don't know who it was. And, and that person, they said, well, I want to do the same thing. And they paid for the person behind them. And the next person got up, and the next person did the same thing, paid for the person behind them. This went on for the next several minutes, and the employees at Starbucks are going, this is amazing. Like seven, you know, like seven... 15 in the morning, you know, it's a few minutes later, 715 in the morning. And like, we've already had 10 to 12 people pay for somebody behind them. This is awesome. And so the employees, they started, they started to get excited (laughs) because I mean, this generosity is not something you normally see. This is really weird. And so they started to actually make a tally. They made a tally sheet and they started making tally marks and they started marking everybody down. And so well, he started to do, he said, maybe I can help this along a little bit. And so very simply, all he did, what he decided to do for, for that day and the employees, he said, I'm just going to ask and say, hey, the person in front of you paid for yours. Uh, would you be willing to pay for the person behind you? That's it. And of course, they weren't forced to, but they just asked him that question. This chain continued. Everybody continued to pay for the person behind them. It went through the entire morning, literally all the way through went through lunchtime, went into the afternoon. The chain never stopped, not even once. Every single person paid for the person behind them. Went on all the way until supper time. Finally, about 6 o'clock, 6 p.m., one of the people, I don't know who it was, came in and they declined to pay for the person behind them even though theirs had been paid for. They said, no, I'm not going to pay for that. And so the chain was broken. That was 6 o'clock in the evening. From 7 in the morning until 6 p.m. at night, the chain kept going. All told, 378 people were a part of that chain that day. Now, the interesting thing is, that one woman, it was one action, one change. She paid for one extra coffee. That was it. That was the only thing that happened that was different that day. In fact, think about it. It didn't really cost anybody else anything extra. It only cost that one woman uh, the price of one extra coffee. That's it. Just shy of 400 people later, 6 o'clock that night, and you can see the ripple effect. But let's be honest. The ripple effect was far, far greater than that, wasn't it? Because... Just shy of 400 people. But what did those people do after that day? We all know what happened. Those people went on with the rest of their day. And do you think that probably they were changed just a little bit by the act of generosity that had just happened? And by the fact, by the way, let me give you a really interesting little secret. When we receive generosity, it makes us feel really good. When you are the one being generous and a blessing, it's far better. Infinitely better. Those 
just shy of 400 people, they went on, my guess is, and there are hundreds of other stories would be my guess. I don't know because we don't have them written down. But my guess is there were hundreds of other stories from those 400 people that went out the rest of their day and they were more generous. They were more of a blessing. They had more of a sense of understanding of who they should be the rest of that day because that one woman decided to pay for one coffee. You never know what the ripple effect is going to be from your decision to be generous and to be a blessing to somebody else. The interesting thing about this story, there's an interesting ripple effect to this story as well. Ruth and Boaz, as it ends up, they go on to get married. And they end up having a son named Obed. And this is pretty awesome because not only does Naomi get a family back, but she gets a grandson. And actually, at the end of the story, it's, you should read the book of Ruth. It's amazing. At the end of the story, Naomi is there with her grandchild, with Obed. And she is basically just tell, giving a blessing to him and saying what a blessing it is from God that she now has a grandson. It's a powerful moment. So everything comes full circle. The generosity and blessing comes all the way around because of Ruth and because of Boaz. But that's not all. Then Obed grows up. And he has a boy named Jesse. And Jesse grows up and he has several sons, a whole bunch of sons. Talk about a boy brood. I mean, man, boys everywhere. And his youngest, his youngest boy's name is David. David will go on to battle against Goliath and eventually become the king of Israel. See where this is going? And then eventually, a thousand years later, we get from this family, from Ruth and Boaz and Obed to Jesse to David and everybody in between, eventually this family is the same family that's going to give us the blessing of all humanity, Jesus Christ. Tell me that Ruth's decision to be generous on the road that day is not kind of a big deal. (laughs) Huge. We receive our Savior. Yes, because of God's power, of course. But God's power working through the generosity and blessing of Ruth to decide to give her life to Naomi. God, as a result, because she said she accepted her faith as well. We never know the ripple effect of our actions, of our decisions. So the question very simply becomes for all of us. What is your life going to be about? What does God want you to do? What is God asking you to do? Where is God asking you to go? What is God asking you to be? I think we go far too long and far too often not even wanting to ask those questions. And so I'm asking it today. What is God asking of you? What nudges has God already nudged you with? And by the way, since we talked about this today, my guess is this week, there are a lot of nudges coming. I know how it works when I preach on something. Dear goodness, God, thank you. I know I need to live what I preach. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, Thank you. Again and again. So my guess is, I don't know, but my guess is God is going to bring a lot of nudges this week. Be ready. What is God asking you to do? Let's pray.
God, I thank you for your generosity and blessing to us. You have, you have given everything to us. And so I thank you for that. And I pray that you would just help all of us in this room now who have heard the story now of Ruth and Boaz. I pray that you would help us to be ready for that nudge this week. God, if there's already been a nudge, I pray that you would help us to commit to change, to sacrifice whatever it is that you're asking us to sacrifice. Our time, our our money, our, our skills and abilities, our knowledge to give away, our knowledge to somebody to help them out. Whatever it is, God, whatever that nudge is, I pray that you would help us to act on it. And those nudges that are going to come this week, I don't know what they're going to be. I have a feeling I've got a few coming myself, God. I pray that you would help us to be ready to act, to jump when you ask us to. May you help us to be extravagantly generous. Help us to be an extravagant blessing to all other people around us. I ask this, I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.